This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Friday, March 20th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. As the coronavirus begins to ease in Asia, European countries are experiencing a dramatic rise in infections and deaths. On Wednesday, Italy reported that 475 people had died from the virus, the highest death toll in a single day of any nation. More than 2,500 people have died in Italy so far, and health workers say that conditions in hospitals resemble wartime. In the past week, the United States, with over 8,000 cases and nearly 150 deaths from the virus, is encouraging social distancing and limiting the working hours of non-essential businesses. But infectious disease experts say these actions aren't enough. Amid the panic buying and self-quarantining, another kind of coronavirus culture is spontaneously emerging to ease public fear, the tedium of isolation, and restrictions on daily life. In Italy, people have been singing on their balconies everything from opera to the national anthem. Robin Wright, a New Yorker contributing writer, joins me to discuss how pandemics change human behavior and what the pandemic reveals about the weaknesses and potential strengths of current political systems. Robin, welcome. Always great to be with you, Dorothy. Uh, We are connecting over the computer, as has become customary among journalists. I love how Italians are keeping each other's spirits up. And last week, you looked into the phenomenon of uh, creative adaptation in other countries. What did you discover elsewhere? And, and do the responses seem to you to reflect the various cultures that are producing them? One of the things that's so interesting about the human species is our need to connect. We're not really conscious of it, but that is reflected in many of our most common rituals, beginning with shaking hands, hugging. The coronavirus has changed or forced us to change many of the traditional rituals of life and cut us off from that reassuring connection that we're not alone in the universe. And the phenomena started, the reaction, the human reaction of coping and camaraderie and reconnecting in virtual ways was reflected first in China, where people also took to the streets, they would yell out to the window, stay strong, Wuhan, which is the city where the first case was announced. Uh, When the nightclubs closed, they set up what they called virtual clubs that people would go to platforms online and a DJ would be performing and people could call in and make requests. They could dance at home and some people would then take pictures of themselves dancing and put them on the platform. That there was the sense of we're going to continue life even at a distance. You saw it in Iran too, uh, doctors and nurses, you know, putting on hazmat suits and doing this dance challenge. And I was struck by this kind of goofy joy that we don't normally associate with the land of humorless ayatollahs. Absolutely. One of the striking things about it was that you had men and women. And of course, at the time of the revolution, dancing and music were verboten. And here were doctors and nurses, medical staff, and they would be dancing in groups. It's 
really striking that there is this quest within us to continue to connect on some level. I've heard from more people on the telephone in the last week than I have in the last year. And from people I haven't talked to in a year because we all still want to maintain that sense of uh, camaraderie and, and caring. Absolutely. You spoke to last week with a few evolutionary anthropologists. And so we're seeing some of the immediate effects of how we're adapting to this disaster. And I just thought that they had a lot of really interesting things to say about the long-term effects of pandemics and how this could permanently change human behaviors, coping mechanisms that have developed over millennia. Well, there's a really good example on Ebola. Ebola broke out uh, in 2014 in West Africa. And in societies at the time, the practice was to have a funeral where family members and friends all touch the corpse. And in the case of one of the deaths, a prominent pharmacist, several of his friends and family members touched the corpse and he had died of Ebola. And of course, they were immediately infected and eight of them soon died. So what had to happen was the behavior, the tradition that dated back centuries was forced to change in order to end the, the epidemic. And they eventually had to send people in with guns to get them to stop that first time and to show them, look, if you want to survive, you cannot do this. Now, Ebola is different in that Ebola kills. And the coronavirus, in most cases, people will survive. And that's where evolutionary biologists talk about, and anthropologists talk about, how we're going to have to change our rituals. One of the big questions is, is this the end of the handshake? Uh, Will these kinds of things change because of our sensitivity and awareness of the danger of microbes. So you also spoke to Samuel Vessier at McGill University, who pointed out that pathogens began moving from animals to humans in Neolithic times during that transition from hunter-gathering to sedentary agricultural life, and that produced early epidemics. Communities eventually developed immunities to local disease, but not to others. So what was the long-term result of this in terms of human behavior? Well, that was one of the fascinating things I've discovered in reporting on this disease, that many human behaviors have actually evolved as a result of our awareness of diseases of the past. Uh, Unfortunately, it also created a xenophobia. Some of the early quarantines, even though they weren't known as that in ancient times, were to put people who were strangers who were coming in from the outside, they would have to be left outside and monitored for 40 days or however long before they were allowed entry. So some of the practices that we use today actually go back a long way and reflect the prevalence of disease or our response to disease in times long before we were aware of them today. But Vessier did not think that the news is all bad. Why not? Well, for a couple of reasons. The downside is that in the West, we have been oversafe, as he calls it, for a very long time. Uh, we haven't had the kinds of shocks to the system. The last one was 9-11, and before that, maybe Pearl Harbor, before that, the Civil War, that we have taken for granted the state of our health or our safety 
from major threats. And so this is a bigger shock to the system. At the same time, there is a kind of humanistic side to survival that we want to harness the goodness, the collaboration, the survival of the species, and that will prevail. And it's even reflected in things like the panic buying at grocery stores. When you go into a supermarket, the shelves may be bare, uh, lines may be long, but people are lawful. They are standing in lines waiting to pay. They are not lawless. They're not breaking into stores. They're following the rules. And some of them are buying for neighbors and friends. So there is underneath all of this a sense of some goodness and even sheltering in place if that's imposed. It's something for the benefit of everybody else. And there are signs that it's even extending into the hateful world of politics. So New York City is particularly vulnerable because of the density of the population. And Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has been one of Trump's harshest critics, said this week in an interview that for the first time, he and the president are working together. I have had a tumultuous relationship with this president. I have opposed many of his policies vociferously. You could probably say there has been no governor in the country who has been as aggressive in his opposition to the president as I have, Mm -hmm. both ideologically and practically. And I probably have sued the president more than any (laughs) governor in the United States. So having said that, I said to the president again this morning, look, Forget everything, forget Democrats, forget Republicans. We're Americans, and that always came first, and that's where we are. I put out my hand in partnership. I need your help. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for your help. I'll be a committed partner. Let's get this done. Let's save lives. But then again, Robin, Trump continues to call the virus the Chinese virus, even as incidents of Asian America xenophobia have risen. And Trump himself was tested last week for the virus after coming into contact at Mar-a-Lago with Jair Bolsonaro's press secretary and Brazil's acting ambassador in Washington, who have been confirmed as having the virus. Officials in France, Italy, Iran, and elsewhere have been infected too. The coronavirus, COVID-19, is very democratic in who it infects. Top leaders, uh, the co-leader of Italian government, Nicola Zarangetti, announced on Twitter that he was infected. Uh, in Italy, the one of the medical chiefs of a key province in the most infected area died of COVID-19. The president of the European Union uh, opted to self-quarantine after he returned from Italy in France. The President Emmanuel Macron um, cut off all face-to-face meetings after his culture minister fell ill with a disease and five members of parliament. In Spain, the lower house of parliament has suspended all of its activities. In Iran, one of the early hotspots, two vice presidents, three cabinet officials, almost 10% of the members of parliament, the director of medical emergency services, the chief of the crisis management organization, and several senior revolutionary guards have all been infected. Across the globe, on six continents, there are government officials who have been infected. And when you look at just the United States, we've had 
six members of the House or or the Senate who have self-quarantined. We've had two cases now of confirmed with coronavirus. One of the big questions is how capable is government to continue to operate? And does it have to change how it operates? Um, But I think most of all, the thing we should all be concerned most about is the first responder and how many of them are becoming ill because of exposure. In Kirkland, Washington, something like a dozen of the firefighters and police were quarantined because they experienced symptoms. Kirkland had to take one of its fire stations offline and turn it into an isolation center just for uh, to care for the quarantine of first responders. They are paying an extraordinary price every day in taking care of the growing numbers of people ha- who have COVID-19. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is not the first time you you mentioned other recent pandemics, but we also had the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918, which also infected leaders across the world. What lessons can we learn from that? Well, it was very interesting. In 1918, the Spanish flu uh, pandemic worked its way through Washington, which is where I live, and the city was closed down. It was schools, churches, libraries, playgrounds, the courts universities, theaters, public events. They even banned funerals at the time. And what was striking is that it worked its way into the White House uh, during Woodrow Wilson's administration. His daughter caught it. So did his secretary, his senior staff, and members of the Secret Service detail. Even two White House sheep, the Washington Post noted in 1919. And it had an extraordinary effect. He came down with the flu when he was in Paris to work on terms to end the First World War. And the talks almost unraveled. He became delusional. He had a high fever. And he eventually came back uh, to the United States, but deeply weakened. And as he was campaigning for the League of Nations, he came down with a stroke. We have a long history of dealing with this. It's just been a while since we've had one of this scope. One of the questions I have for you as I began thinking about this podcast was how reporters are are adapting and doing their work, given the extreme limitations of talking to sources. Of course, you've been reporting from abroad for, I don't know, some 40 years. Then I got an email from you saying that you were at the ER taking the test for COVID-19. So first and most important, how are you feeling? I feel the same as when I had the test. I've been sick for um, a number of weeks, and I was on antibiotics, and I was getting continually worse. And so on Monday, my doctor ordered me to go get a test. So I showed up uh, Tuesday on St. Patrick's Day at George Washington Hospital, where I was incredibly impressed with the thoroughness, thoughtfulness, kindness, calm, uh, efficiency of those who tested and it's an interesting experience. You wait to be called because there are a long list of long line of people who want to be tested. And they, they do triage and look at your circumstances. And they agreed that I needed to be tested. 
And I went through the test. And in fact, it takes all of like 30 seconds. Uh, the president has made a big deal of it, but it's this very same test that you do for the flu. They stick something down your nose, pull it out, and that's it. Uh, but then I had to go get other tests as a result, because one of the dangers is if you have COVID-19, that you can develop pneumonia. So they sent me to the emergency room where I was put in isolation and given tests for pneumonia, strep. I had some blood tests and the whole process took about six hours. But the thing that struck me was how wonderful they all were, what pressure they're under, how many people were there and how I came away so reassured that the medical staff is doing what they can, what they should be doing, that even though our political leaders were very, very, very late in identifying and coming to grips with the scope of this pandemic, and I think they're still not there, that the medical staff um, at George Washington Hospital were astounding in the way they dealt with it. Proof of Fessier's point about people coming together and working together and being at their best in, in their own professions. Uh, and I wonder what it's like reporting on this pandemic, particularly now that you may have been personally affected by it, and as someone who's been closely watching other virus hotspots, such as Iran. Covering this is very much like covering a war. There is an enemy, and it's how do you deal with it? How do you develop a defense strategy? How do you counter it? How do you defeat it? Uh, it's a little bit like covering climate change as well. It's, again, the challenges in the 21st century. And this one may be with us, this virus, for a long time. This is not a war we're going to easily win. And it also may be a signal of the kind of threat that we face down the road, the next virus that mutates. Already we have two variations, the L strain and the S strain of the coronavirus. How will it mutate in the future? How will other disease, zoonotic diseases, those that transfer from animals to humans, what other ones will emerge with time? And how will it change the way we deal? Maybe we will be more sensitive to the realities of existence in the 21st century uh, that in some ways take us way back in time to the kind of threats they had long before they understood bacteria and microbes. Which countries have gotten it right so far and what measures seem to work best? China just reported no new cases. Well, one of the problems is the kind of political system you have in China, because it's an authoritarian government that can impose any kind of rule and enforce it, it can t probably take more draconian measures as it finally did after denying and even persecuting or prosecuting doctors journalists who were writing about the fact there was a new virus out there. Many governments um, have were very late in the day, the United States included, but Iran, Italy, England, many in Europe. I mean, this has been the chronic problem. Everyone thought, well, it's in one place. We can you know, deal with it there and not understanding that in a globalizing era and the human beings are traveling now we will face more and more of these. And so it is a race and it's a, a war we may find it defines our national security in ways even more than the conventional war with the use of arms. Thank you so much for joining me, Robin, at this incredibly difficult time. Well, you keep me busy and it's a way of connecting. So thank you, Dorothy. Thank you.
Robin Wright is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and the author of several books about the Middle East, including The Last Great Revolution, Turmoil and Transformation in Iran. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for newyorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden. <laughs>